Julius here, just a brief word before we get started on the show. Um, we're joined together with Stonemeyer Games, their 2016 charity auction, which is uh, something they've done in the past and raised a fair amount of money for various different charities. Uh, this year, we're working together with Stonemeyer Games and a number of other podcasters, including Low Player Count, Brawlin Brothers, and Man vs. Meeple. So, the way that this charity is going to be working is that each winner of each auction, and there's a number of different auctions up there, is going to be receiving one copy of the collector's edition of Scythe, in addition to a copy of the expansion for Scythe that's coming out, Scythe Invaders from Afar, including free shipping anywhere in the world. And the winning bid for each of these auctions go to the charity selected by each of the podcasters or media creators. I know that for us, the auction is that Stonemeyer's doing that's associated with us. Uh, we asked for it to be going to Doctors Without Borders. And I know that this is a cause that I've wanted to support in the past. I know that they've done a lot of help for you know people who need medical care really all around the world, wherever they find a need for it. And it's a cause that we've wanted to support in the past. I know that I've participated in some other events that have helped raise money for them. And I think that it's definitely a worthy cause. And so I'm very happy to be working together with Stonemeyer Games in their auction this year. And just, you know, on a personal thing, um, going over to that Stonemeyer Games auction and even just giving a thumb up over to our uh, auction, not only is it going to help bring in more people to see the auction and potentially help the auction to raise more money, but it also will have some benefit for us as a podcast. It'll help continue to show the popularity of our podcast and help bring more listeners. But also, the content creator whose auction gets the most thumbs is going to receive an advanced copy of Charterstone from Stonemaier Games, which is their upcoming legacy solitaire-friendly game. And I know that's a game that I've personally been watching and I'm excited to see once it gets released. So, you know, we'd love to be able to review that, talk about it on the podcast more, and so we'd definitely like to see more thumbs coming up on the auction. You know, and we definitely want people to be able to participate in this auction, participate in raising charity. There's a number of different causes. Each of the podcast creators has picked their own cause. And we really hope that Stonemaier Games is going to be doing very well for this charity auction. We're glad to participate. So we're putting a link to it over in the show notes. We hope everyone will go check it out. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 114. Yeah! War games! Oh. I, I, is Julius here? I don't think Julius is here. I'm here, guys. Can anybody hear me? Echo? Echo? Uh, I, I can hear you. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Um, as you could maybe guess, there's actually four hosts. Julius made it back, and he brought Travis with him. Hello. Hey, Travis. Hey, Julius. Hey, Chris. I made it back, did I? <laughs> hey, how are you doing? This is great. Well, there's never been four people, except maybe the time we did the video chats, which was very different. But So this is exciting. Oh, yep. And, and we have Travis here because we're talking about war games today. Yes. And Travis is war the local games. expert. Oh, am I? 
I've, I've played a couple war games. <laughs> the guild expert, expert on war games. <laughs> sure. If you need to know about war, you talk to Travis. I bet he's even got guns stocked in his basement. <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> Please don't. No, no, I'm, I'm not even going to go down that trail. <clears throat> it's like he sits down, he gets on his little camo hat, he sits down and says, Men, today we roll dice. <laughs> I, I wish, but no. I just sit alone in the back office with a war game. That's it. Push it around. <laughs> Drinking a cup of coffee. <laughs> All right. So so we're talking war games. Um, and we're going to talk about one specific war game also, which is Agricola. Not the farming Agricola. Agricola, the war game Agricola. Agricola colon, master of Britain. That's right. And and this is the the original Agricola, I guess, because apparently there's a guy in ancient Rome named Agricola. Mm-hmm. And the game is named after him. Doesn't Agricola mean like farmers? I believe it. Yes, I believe it's like Latin for farming. So maybe he was a farmer before he became a general. So when you actually talk about a guy, Farmer Joe, who comes by, this guy was actually named like Farmer Joe, just in Latin. Yes. Yes. Got it. I think Got so. Got it. And so, yeah, so we're talking about that. We're talking about war games in general, and we sort of don't have anything resembling a script. So if anybody has anything to add, this would be the time. Mm. War games. How often do the three of you play war games solo or well, I otherwise think to really answer that let's define what is a war game oh oh this question <laughs> <laughs> that, that's hard that's a hard is it not a question it is but there there is no consistent answer it depends who you ask and when you ask them i think uh, i mean if it, if it happens during a war is it a war game right it, does it have to have units fighting because some games that could be considered a war game by a lot of people don't even have fighting in it. Maybe because they're about a different aspect. I mean, for example, is Scythe a war game? Uh, I don't know. Because I play Scythe. I, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I, do you I've think actually, it's a war game? Really, the answer is, if you think it's a war game, it probably <laughs> the, is. The best answer is, is I've never played like one of those classic hex encounter, millions of pieces, look up tables type war game outside of Axis and Allies. I've played minis games, you know, like um, Dust Tactics, or uh, now the name is not coming to mind, but it's the other one with like the creepy dolls, and now I can't remember the name at all. But I've played other minis games, but those don't really feel like war games. There's Warhammer Disc Wars, which was an awesome minis game. Is that a war game? Mm -hmm. It's really hard for me to understand, really, what is a war game. I've certainly never played Agricola Masters of Britain. (laughs) <laughs> I I I tend to use the term historical simulation a lot of times. Um so like freedom the railroad game. Yeah, but there's not combat in Freedom of the Underground Railroad. I think one of the points of a war game is that there needs to be some type of combat i mean even even in a game like twilight struggle which is more of a political game than it is a war game there is still some semblance of combat in there um as opposed to a game like what you were talking about um like d-day at omaha beach is a massive you know hex uh hex encounter war game right so that's um but that feels like a war game. It's because you have, you know, chits with 
different combat ratings on all of them, right? As opposed to I don't know. Yeah, it, it, this is this is always the hard part. And then the difficult thing is that depending, just like uh, just like Albert said, depending on who you ask, it's it's different, right? And so you have the the die in the wool grognards, for lack of a better term, who've just been playing nothing but hex encounter war games for the last forty years, and so they go, well, no, this is a war game. Navajo Wars, not a war game. Right. <laughs> Sorry, does does doesn't matter because it doesn't have doesn't have hexes and there are cards. <laughs> we don't use cards, um, but then you have people that are, uh, I guess, newer, like myself. I'm newer into war games, and so for me, anything that is some type of a um, uh, political struggle, historical simulation style game, um, I would just easily lump it into the category of war game, even if it's not a war game per se, you know, but I mean... So you're limiting it to political, so for instance, Battle Lore, which is squad-based warfare set in a fantasy realm, doesn't count as a war game? And see, that's where things get tricky, because I would mm-hmm. say that it does count as a war, gra- war game, because it's based off the commands and color systems, mm-hmm. right? Yep. <laughs> And so that's where, yeah. And so that's where things get super wibbly, I guess, because you don't really. What is a war Correct. game? I mean, I. Th- that's a good question, and yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I think so. Did it? I think it did. Yeah, I think it did. Or... It, it was quite uh, offensive to a few people. <laughs> huh. That's kind of funny. <laughs> you know, it's like people came up with questions about Pandemic Legacy and whether or not Pandemic Legacy is a game. It's such a hard term to define. It really is. It's easier to to say a squad-based warfare game. I can tell you exactly what a squad-based warfare game is, but that even that definition goes broad. So saying such a broad term as as war game, that's a very difficult question to answer. It is. It is. Wow. Yeah. And and people people fight over that. You mentioned Small World and Twilight Struggle. Both of these games are people are people on Board Game Geek or other areas of the internet like emphatically fight this is not a war game or yes it is and there's not any combat in twilight struggle and there's political combat you know it goes mm-hmm. back and forth and yeah. it's in some ways it's a silly question and and we were talking about historical stuff i mean i can think of several science fiction games and fantasy games like battle lore that you know have that combat have the you know looking up on charts or or random elements to determine um you know who won the combat so it's it's very hard to say it has to be historical or it has to be hex based. I mean, we we have such a wide variety of games out there that you know it, you can fight a lot about what goes under what umbrella, but you know what's the point of doing that really when I, I don't see the benefit of arguing small world is or is not a war game really <laughs> because people love to fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard the jokes about two Jews and three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our arguing about Small World is a war game. <laughs> but I mean, I think that we try and even sidestep these sort of questions when we were doing the um, solo con background Gen Con, the Gen Cant solo con. Uh-huh. And there we said, you know, we're having a war game 
portion, and you can define wargame however it is you want, and you can make it as broad as you want just to include whatever game it is that you want. If you want to have a really interesting definition of wargame just so you can include, I don't know, Viceroy in in the wargame category, <laughs> sure, yeah. you can. We don't care, because <laughs> I'm sure that someone can come up with a definition <laughs> to do it. If everyone could learn to get yeah. along, the world would be a very different place. <laughs> <laughs> and then there wouldn't be any war games. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on your definition of war game, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, People would keep making small world expansions. <laughs> this is never gonna end. So, so then I guess my answer to the question is: Yeah, I do play war games because I play games I consider war games, mm-hmm. including small world. Yes, I'm okay admitting that. I've not played anything Good. quite like Navajo Wars, though. Including Navajo Wars, so some okay. of the really one, heavier, to me, didn't feel like some a of the game. really heavier war games with a lot of units and a lot of keeping track and a lot of stuff like that. If it goes above the level of squad-based warfare, I've not done mm-hmm. anything like that. If it's army-based warfare, I've really not done anything like that. Hmm. How about like Memoir Forty Four? It's not Memoir 44. I've not actually played Memoir 44, but I thought Memoir 44 is very close yeah. to um, Battle Lore. Yeah. It's the same system. So that's still squad-based. It's a pretty limited army, as opposed to something like Navajo Wars, where there's a lot of... There's more units, in, to my understanding, in Navajo Wars than there are in Battle Lore. Someone who's played both may be able to correct me and say, no, but... Um, I, it's not... It's not that. It's just there are they're vastly different games with vastly different systems behind each one of them. I mean, you take you take something like Navajo Wars, which is a card-driven simulation of sorts of the subjugation of the Navajo people from throughout their entire history um, versus battle lore, tactical combat. You know, there is no tactical combat in in Navajo Wars. There is tactics, of course, but there's not any minute, well, let's move this guy in here and fight this guy. I mean, that doesn't really work the same way. You do that because you have to, not because that's the goal of the game. You know, the goal of the game is to survive until the end, Um, which obviously is going to be the same in Battle Lore, but the way that you survive is going to be entirely different, so... I don't know. I play um, I play a considerable number of war games, ranging from coin games to um, states of siege games. You know, I mean, states of siege. That's from Victory Point Games. That's that's a system that, even though they almost all take place during wars, they, they don't necessarily feel like war games. You know, but they're all historically flavored, I guess. Especially the Dawn of the Zeds one. Yeah, the history is really strong. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly, right? (laughs) That's why I said most of them take place during wars. (laughs) More of them have taken place during wars than not. I mean, aside from Dawn of the Zeds, they're only releasing their second non-historically themed um, States of Siege game, and that's set in space. There's a fantasy one, too. Um, Oh, uh, Legion Legion of Darkness? So there's... That one, Yes, that's the one, and there's an expansion for it as well. it's, It's... Good game on the system, but yeah, obviously not historical. You're fighting trolls and orcs and things. And I mean, also, is Thunderbolt Apache Leader, is that of a similar weight category? And is it the weight category which is bringing it up to those levels? What do you mean by that? Well, is Thunderbolt Apache Leader what we're talking about as a war game? I haven't actually played that system. 
I'm. I mean, it can be. I mean, it's it's a it's a war themed game that involves tactics and strategy. Um, <laughs> I mean, since since we're just kind of throwing around stuff, you know. I mean, it could be. It could pretty much. It sounds bad. It could be most things. If it sounds like something that you want it to be a war game, that it can be. Um, but under certain circumstances, I mean, Lotus or Castles of Burgundy, the card game, are not war games by any stretch of the imagination. Um, <laughs> Someone's going to write us as to why it is. <laughs> do it, <laughs> do it, spring it on. Um, but I don't know. I, and for me, it's it's easier to discern. This sounds bad. It's easier to discern between publishers. You know, um, somebody like Multiman Publishing or GMT or Consum World, any of those, it's easier for me to go, yeah, most of those are going to be kind of war games. I, I'm going to stick behind that stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Until GMT goes and publishes a sports game. Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> that, <laughs> Ra- that racing games. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so if I haven't played that- any of those type of games before, because I don't think I really have played... <laughs> what we want to call for the purposes of the discussion of war game. I don't think I personally have why, what would draw me to it? Why should I? I think it'd be the subject matter. Really? If you, if you find the subject interesting, it's a good way to learn about it. Um, I've been listening to a podcast lately, uh, war games to go, mm-hmm. um, which is really great. I, I've, I've like, uh, listened to all 20, whatever episodes in the last week and a half. And, the guy that does this, um, I don't remember his last name, Mark somebody. Mark Johnson. He, Mark Johnson. He he will pick a subject he wants to learn more about, let's say the Battle of Dunkirk or, or D-Day or whatever, and he'll he'll get a lot of games on the subject, he'll read books on the subject and watch movies, and he plays the games to simulate the different battles to get a feel and understanding of what the battle was like. Um, so mm. So he's interested in the game because it's teaching him something about a subject he's already interested in. And to me, that makes sense for, for a lot of the war games. They're interesting because you learn more about that subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, I second what Albert said. I, I love learning about the history and, and playing these games and making some of the decisions, you know, on a much lower level, obviously. Uh, but some of the decisions that these actual military commanders or, or poli- political leaders would have had to make. Um, I find it fascinating. Like it's a really cool way to learn about history. You know, it's a fun and engaging way of, um, you know, I, I love the episode of war games to go where they talked about the battle of Dunkirk and played a couple of games from that. Like it, it's just such a great way to learn about a specific subject or, or, um, you know, get more involved in, in learning about uh, these battles that took place or these historical periods. So for you guys, it's about the, learning experience it's being able to immerse yourself in someone else's boots do you do the same thing with other types of games that are set in historical settings like you know i'm gonna say lewis and clark just to get a totally different genre very historical very full of flavor of things that occurred in that time do you do the same thing or is it because it's not realistic enough in its simulation of what occurred i think that that's it would fit the same need um, you know, the thing is, if I don't find the subject interesting already, it's going to be really hard to get into it. Um, same with the war game. I've tried war game. I remember what it was. It was one of the leader games. It, and it was about modern air warfare. And I just didn't find that at all interesting. And I could not get into the game. I just, and, it, and you know, it was, it wasn't the mechanics. The mechanics seemed quite sound, but the theme just didn't capture me at all. 
Yeah, and I, I agree with Albert. I think the you know a game like Lewis and Clark, or just to throw out there uh, the the other version of Agricola about farming and raising your family. Like I do like that element of immersing yourself in the game and and trying to feel what what you know these medieval farmers or Lewis and Clark might have felt like. So I can I, I agree with all that, but I also do like. I mean we've talked about what is a war game and that element of combat. And I like that. I I like having some chance in the game and trying to figure out the best tactics to use chance in my favor. So I I like the history, but I also like just that style of game. So I'm not sure if I got a totally clear answer and I'm apologize. I'm coming off Travis, but are you saying that you do immerse yourself and feel as if you're in the protagonist's shoes in non-war games or not? I think Albert said no, but Chris said yes. I say yes. Like Castles of Mad King Ludwig I played recently and really, you know, it, it's a silly game and you're building a silly castle, but I, I just love that feeling of like, okay, I've got to, how do I arrange this and make, you know, I, I get into that architect frame of mind, even though it's not a simulation by any stretch of the imagination, but when I play a game in general, I, I feel like there's some element of role-playing, for lack of a better word, that uh, is a big element of the enjoyment for me. And it's true for me, too. Um, and with Agricola, for example, that one, every time I play it, it just marvels me that this is what farming was like 200 years ago. And, you know, you don't get much of a sense of it really from the game, but still, it makes me think about it. And and I really like that about it. It's It's hard for me to get too immersed in in kind of like your standard euro game you know um i because because for me for me part of it with wargaming part of it is definitely part of it is definitely putting yourself in the shoes it is that that theme but then part of it is also the system in and of itself um because i found myself I found myself not enjoying the the theme or the historical setting of a game, but the fact that the system is really neat or really interesting or intriguing to me, then that will keep prodding me along. And sometimes they work in tandem. Sometimes they're disjointed. Like, um, well, <clears throat> like in the war game genre, I don't like and this is super weird because this is you know like 85 percent of all war games i don't like world war ii games i don't care about um the pacific theater i don't care about the european theater i just it's it's not my thing i've tried and i just don't like any of them or i i just don't like the the to i don't like getting behind it thematically but a game like d-day at omaha beach or a game like churchill because those systems are so unique I really like how those are set up and the system in it itself will prod me along to continue playing, even though I'm like, eh, I don't really care too terribly much about about the historical content of this. But the cool thing is that I still get to learn as I play the game as well, which is which is obviously an exciting thing to be able to do. You all are so much more intellectual than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you guys all are saying at the very least at one point in time, all of you guys care about learning. I I I feel like even when I'm playing any of these games, I'm like, interesting. Okay, nice. That's fun. It's it's nice that there's a good theme. It's really integrated nicely. But for me, I, it's usually always about the game. Like I was just playing. Have any of you heard of Black Orchestra? Oh, I just got that, but I haven't tried it yet. 
You just got that. I was just playing it uh, last night, and the theme of Black Orchestra, it's set in the start and through World War II, so it's set through the Holocaust. And the idea of the game is that you're one of various insurgents attempting to rise up and assassinate Hitler before the entirety of the Holocaust and the war can occur. Um, and I was playing with some other people and they were like, wow, it's really interesting. Like you learn about this German Duschenfalt name and this guy and this event and Kristallnacht. And as a Orthodox Jew, like a lot of that, those things I already know about, but I didn't approach the game. I didn't approach the game as, as an emotional effect of being stepped in there. To me, the game was, I, I was, you know, a mechanic of the game that I want to win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it, for me, for me, the phenomena is wargaming. Um, because as I said in, in other terms, I don't feel that way. You know, um, I've been playing a ridiculous amount of A Feast for Odin lately, and um, I, I don't feel like I'm a Viking in that game. I, and I don't care about not feeling like a Viking in that game. I just sit there and go, oh, shiny stuff. This is fun. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm so jealous you got a copy of that. Oh, man. It's another episode, but it's incredible. Yeah, wow. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I keep seeing it posted on the solitaire games on your table. It's not fair. I'm sure eventually one will come in, but uh, anyway. I mean, it's terrible. It's a terrible game. It's a it's a shelf <laughs> hog. I don't want to hear it from you. Hog. I mean, I just burn it, burn it in fire. That's what I'm going to do tomorrow. Good idea. <laughs> anyway, slight tangent. So, but you're saying it's really the war games that make you feel more in person with a game more actually represented as the protagonist. Mhm. Yeah. What is it that flips that switch for you? Um I, for me it's it's more it's more historical, it's more flavor um for example, I mean it I don't know, Castles of Burgundy. I'm just looking at my shelves over here. Or Orléans. Here we go. Or Orléans, right? That is a fantastic game. Orléans is a real city. You mean Orleans? Orleans. Sorry, I had to do it. It's I had okay. to. It's okay. Um, I have been to Orléans before. I. It is a wonderful place. I have actual connections to that city in, through my wife and her family. And I still just feel like I'm pushing pieces around. I don't sit there and go, oh, yeah, Orléans, that's great. No, I just feel like I'm pushing pieces around. But whenever I flip over cards in, I don't know, or like a States of Siege game, I'm playing Ottoman Sunset, and every single card has a title and uh, has historical text that backs up and explains what every single title is. Um, that's what gets me excited about it. That's what really puts me into it. And I love that that game designers will sit there and go, you can just shuffle these cards up randomly, or you could actually put them in numerical order and go through the entirety of the war events as they take place in in the time frame that they take place. And I just, I just think it's neat that it's not this random smattering of bits, but it is well thought out um a well-thought-out design that is there for you to try and put it all together. And that's those are the times that wargaming really gets me in. I think that's why States of Siege games, even though they're not 
quote unquote war games, I guess, um, they really make me feel that I am part of it. Um, whenever I'm sitting there and I'm I'm playing Cruel Necessity, I can read what's going on in the English Civil Wars as the game goes on, and I find that really, really fun. Not to sidetrack too much, but you were talking about how you have that intense feeling for the city and that real connection to it, and I was just waiting for the end to be, and yet sometimes I still pronounce it Orleans. <laughs> oh. Hey, Travis, so if you really get into to the to the games and the war games like you're, you're describing, do you find it hard to play one side or the other? Like, Mm-mm. would you find it hard to be the Germans in a World War II game, for example? Um, possibly. Possibly. I think I would have to be removed from it to a degree um, or, or enough, you know? I mean, it's like, I'll sit there and I'll play... Um, no, because if I if I actually look at my shelves, I look at the games that I own, um, like I would sit there and I'd play Fire of the Lake and I would have no problem playing all four factions in Fire of the Lake. I would have no Refresh problem. Refresh my memory, what's Fire of the Lake's Fire, Fire of the Lake is the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And so you have uh, the United States government, you have the Arvin, you have the Viet Cong, and the uh, North Vietnamese Army. Um all go all four factions going against each other. And I don't think I would have a problem with it, but Fire of the Lake and the coin system is a little more abstracted as well. And so it kind of ta- it removes you a little bit. So maybe in the Viet Cong, all I'm doing is I'm fighting against other cubes and I can remove those cubes and that's not a big deal as opposed to, you know, um, a counter with a name on it. Um, that has a specific battle rating or whatever it happens to be. So how crucial is it for your enjoyment of the war game for it to be either historical or historically accurate? Let's say that it's not historical. Let's say it's Dawn of the Zed's theme, totally Mm -hmm. made up fantasy, but they made up a whole story for it, but it's totally made up. Or alternatively, what if it's all wrong? Someone didn't do their research, but the game is amazing. Do either of those bother you, or can you still get enjoyment out of the game when you do that? I know for me, as long as the system works, then I'll enjoy it. Because I'm, I I like heavy Euro games and economic games, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be about the, hi- the historical accuracy, or whether it's real or not. Because um, I can sit there and I'll play Dawn of the Zeds, and I'll have fun with Dawn of the Zeds because I like the system and I like the way that it works out. So that's where that's where one kind of trumps over the other sometimes. So when it comes down to, in the end, it's about the system. Yeah, yeah. I'll get drawn in by the theme and the topic. Um, and if I can get past that, then then the system might push me over to where I enjoy it. But but then sometimes I get into the theme and then I get to the system and I go, man, this sucks. And then I just get rid of the game. It's that simple. <laughs> well, and I'll, I'll throw out, too, on that question. I played recently um, A Hill Near Hastings which is a, a short, you know, it's a little war game based on uh, the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Uh, you know, this is a conflict I've read a lot about. I've been tinkering around with my own game design on it for a while. Um, so I, I was very, very familiar with this battle. And I felt, you know, and I, there's a lot of area for interpretation, um, you know, and I'm not an expert, but I felt as I was playing it that the history had been bungled pretty badly and it really dis- distracted from my enjoyment of the game like the the system involved i, I, I lost interest in because i kept feeling like this isn't right the archers shouldn't be able to do this you know the 
the men at arm shouldn't be able to do that, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, I, I know that's kind of a silly attitude to take, but when I see history, especially of something that I'm very familiar with that isn't living up to, you know, what, what the actual history was or what my understanding of it was, uh, I struggle with the game a lot more. I, I could see that happening for me too. I, I think it's important that they get it right. If you know, if I know that it's wrong, it's going to bother me. If I don't know, I couldn't care less. <laughs> I probably would never know. <laughs> yes, that helps. Not knowing helps. And Travis, you mentioned um, like the states of siege have those little snippets of text on them, and I, I I really love that too. Like one of my favorite genres within war games is that card-driven game or the States of Siege, or the DVG, or not DVG, uh, Decision Games miniseries. Yes. Um, all of these games have, even if it's just a little paragraph or a few sentences, every card that drives the game forward or activates units or activates the enemy all have some historical text on them, which shows you know how much research went into the game. And like that's my favorite game or favorite kind of game for for learning about a battle or something like Agricola, the game we're going to talk about today, Agricola colon Masters of Britain um, <laughs> is, you know, it, it was a good game. It's a good system. But, you know, I, I think it's it's there's there's not that same feel of I'm learning a lot yeah. here. Um, you know, it's, it's a cool, cool war game system, but you could probably apply this to other battles pretty easily because there's not that strong historical tie exactly yeah and i like i like a critical master britain because of the system but i but i don't sit there and go man i am just cruising across the countryside just getting rid of the galls i don't i don't feel that you know i'm just <laughs> you just you just feel like i'm pushing some chits around and rolling a die and hoping i come out on top and if you feel like you're um, getting rid of the Gauls when you're playing a game about Roman conquest of Britain, then you're really playing the wrong game. <laughs> what is the biggest type of mistake that a war game can make or that a design for a war game can make in order to totally turn you off to it? That's an interesting question. And I've seen discussions on Consum World and Board Game Geek, like if a game would allow an exceptionally non-historical outcome mm-hmm. i think that's that that could be a problem for some people um but it's a hard you know when you're making a war game obviously either side should be able to win you want the game to be balanced so if you're making a world war ii game there should be a scenario or you know a possibility for the german player to win that battle or or win that war um you know horrible as that would have been historically you want that in your game um so from a historical perspective, you want to try to keep it within a realistic framework, but you don't want, um, you know, you, you, at the same time, you want the game to be fun and playable. If it's too tied to history so that the Russians will always win the Battle of Stalingrad, for instance, and the German player doesn't have a chance, that's not going to be fun for, for the player and your game isn't going to do well. Well, unless you phrase it something like Stronghold, the game, where the orcs are always going to win, the question is, can you just hold on long enough? Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. The winning the game doesn't have to mean winning the battle. Yeah, it's it's tricky. It's tricky trying to find the thing that that would turn you off. Um, 
I don't think there, for me, there's not one specific thing um, that would just really make me go, yeah, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play that game. I think, I think complexity, I think war games are at a different level of complexity than a vast majority of other games. And so whenever you get to a complex war game or a, a war game that is noted as being specifically complex, um, then you get into um, what war gamers call Chrome. And those are just like the infinitesimally small rules that are only used maybe twice over the span of a seven hour series of games and you just and it's and it's all for historical flavor is all it is but it's it's important and you can understand why it's important but you never really use it and whenever a game has too much chrome that might turn me off because i just i don't want to sit there and have to remember that paragraph that was in you know rule point 13.1.2 a paragraph two line one i don't know I, I shouldn't have to do that um and so for me and but i know some people who love the minuscule nature of it but i i don't i'm that's that is beyond me yeah i i was involved in the production of a napoleonics game and it, it well it never was produced so but i was involved in the development of a game at one point and there was huge discussions about Napoleonic war gamers are this unique breed of people that are so into the details. Like, you know, there were concerns about if we get the uniform on the counter wrong. So, you know, this teeny tiny little picture of a soldier, if we have the, you know, one of the belts in the wrong place that people were going to get on consum world and say that we hadn't done our homework and the game was unplayable. And, and, you know, we were trying to go for this fun light view, view of Waterloo. Um, but there, there's a significant number of, of players, especially for Napoleonics where that's a huge, huge issue where getting those details wrong or, um, you know, having a gun that can shoot too far or, um, you know, my issues with that battle of Hastings game where the archers were so overpowered um, compared with what they would have been in history, I, that kind of thing can throw off players really easily. And, and it's, it's a hard thing when you're designing a game with that style. Yeah. War gamers can be those people, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, there's people who know so much about World War II that it's, it's freaky. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't get the same with Euro games as much. You, you just don't have people so concerned about uh, what game is on the table of the Agricola tiles. <laughs> yeah. Did it, did anyone uh, freak out when Carcassonne was released that it didn't match the uh, actual city of Carcassonne very well? Yes. <laughs> probably. Probably someone did. <laughs> I mean, you're asking whether or not someone overreacted on the internet. The answer is always <laughs> yes. That that is that's a very good point. <laughs> so what are what are some good solitaire war game like starter sets you know what if you had to narrow it down to a couple of different games that for the average person who just wouldn't it's like man i kind of kind of like war games or i'm interested in it but especially solo i want to get a taste yeah yeah i just want to get a a taste you know something that doesn't have a giant rules overhead you know what would what would those one or two games be i think you got to start with a theme you know what what subject are you interested in talk to me i have no particular subject i'm interested in and it's all about the game to me mm. 
So I'm I'm a big advocate of the States of Siege series when people talk about new games or you know just getting into it or the De- Decision Games mini game series. Um, these are games with short rule books. I mean, you can you can read read the rule book and get your game to the table about as quickly as a Euro game. They're they're not complex rules, but that Chrome that Travis was talking about things that in a normal war game would be rule 37.1.4.z that are super easy to forget and only come up occasionally. Those still exist in the States of Siege games, but they're all handled on the cards. So you'll draw a card, and if there's a special rule that applies, it's it's right there on the card so you don't forget it. And it doesn't ever apply when that card isn't in play. So you get some, you know, that war game feel. You're not conducting a super deep battle in, in any of these games it, but you get that sense of you know okay here's that special rule that applies it's much easier to get into that war game state of mind using a system like that where the chrome can be offloaded onto the cards uh, than when you have to try to memorize a 37 page rule book you know <laughs> agreed yeah memorizing rule books is never going to work for me <laughs> The other thing that's really great about like the States of Siege series is there's what 15 yeah. 20 games in that series now. I mean, if you are interested in you know Napoleonic Warfare, they've got a game. They've got a game on um uh, the Alamo. Um they've got games on the struggle for Israeli independence. I mean, there there's the English Civil War is a great one. And then they've also got the fantasy ones, the Legions of Darkness and Dawn of the Zeds and the, the space game that's coming out soon. Um, there's just such a wide variety, and you could really jump in at any point on there and you know find a, a battle that really was interesting to you and jump into that system easily. And the best part is that they're just – designers are given creative license to have fun with it in whatever way. You know, um, I my first days of Siege game was Ottoman Sunset, and so I took Ottoman Sunset and I immediately fell in love with it and got Habsburg Eclipse, which is same thing from Darren Leveloff, and so it is just a variation on a theme. And I'm like, oh, this is great! Well, I'm gonna get a third one, and then I got Zulus on the Ramparts, which has some of the basic ideas of it, but it uses cards. Not that you're going through the deck, but actually has a card, a hand management system. And you're like, whoa, where did this come from? And then they take that into Empires in America and they blow it up on a larger map with more cards that you're going through this deck in hand and multiple draw piles. And then, I don't know, it's just, it's really interesting because it's not just the same, it's not the same system. It's not the same game over and over again. And people designers are being really creative with the states of siege games so i'm excited to see how it continues to change over the years yeah and that's a great point i should have qualified they're not they all have the same framework of you have a central location and there's enemies moving in from multiple paths into your central location that's the framework that they're all built off of but the games are not all the same thing like if you buy um, Israeli independence, and then you buy um, Dawn of the Zeds. You're, you've got two incredibly different games based on that same framework. With different levels of complexity, even. Yeah. And very yeah. much so, especially with those two <laughs> examples. <laughs> no joke. Albert, what about you? What would, uh, what would one or two war games from you be? Intro, solo, war gaming. 
Um, you know, the states of siege are good, but I think the problem with them is that people, when when you hear war games, they're thinking, "Oh, I want to learn war. I want to get into war games," and they're always thinking hex encounter games in their mind. I think that's what they imagine, um, or something much bigger than states of siege. And I think the states of siege are, are great and they're they're really interesting, but they're not going to prepare you for that. And if the person's wanting to get prepared for that, it's not going to work. So I think maybe like a solitaire game, like um. Well, like the one we're talking about today, which which has counters moving on a map and all that, would be a better introduction to wargaming. I would toss out um, the Field Commander series um, from mm-hmm. DVG is really good. Field Commander Alexander was my first Field Commander game, and it felt very easy to get into. I mean, you're talking 12 pages of rules and big font. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's some chits and there's point to point map movement and there are units that you're dragging around and there's combat and it makes you feel that you are Alexander trying to cross through the countryside and and just take control and so that's I I I feel and there and it's campaign right so you can play four different smaller levels uh smaller level games for just one large campaign all the way through and so i think that's a very well done well thought out system um i would love to play field commander napoleon but that's a that's a lot of money and a big box <laughs> is is there a lot more scenarios in it um i i think so i think there's seven or eight and deep there's there's four scenarios in Alexander, and I think there, if I'm remembering right, I think there's ten wow. scenarios in in Napoleon, and they they mounted all of the boards, which they didn't do in Alexander. They were paper maps, so that box ended up being, I think it is six inches huh? thick. It's huge on my shelf. Yeah, Alexander. Um, they put out recent editions in Alexander that all the maps are mounted what it is but napoleon is just a giant box and they have a different map for every single scenario which is really cool but also outrageous mm-hmm. <laughs> whenever you think and, about and it. you get to learn a little history from those two i think i thought it was neat the alexander one i definitely learned something from it i don't remember what i learned though and i, I was wrong alexander boards have always been mounted the uh, the rommel boards were paper maps in the first edition which is what i have that's like the box goes from like half an inch on Rommel to six inches on Napoleon as you go through that series. I'm a little surprised that none of you mentioned Conflict of Heroes. That one, that one's more complex. I wouldn't use that as a start game because you know the problem with that is that you're going to need to get the Conflict of Heroes base game, which is at least fifty dollars if you look online, right? Pro- mm-hmm. Probably more if you buy it at your friend local game store. And you could play that solo, but you're playing both sides. And I think that's going to turn off a fair number of people. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to play the solo system, you got to buy that expansion, which is then at least another $30, maybe more. Um, but it is a great game. I've been wanting to play that again lately. And I have only played the two-player version of it. I've never played the solitaire expansion, so that's why that one didn't pop to my mind. I mean, I've heard very good things about it, but I'm not familiar with it. I've read up on it plenty of times, but I've never actually sat down to play it because I don't own it. That'll do it. Well, Albert, let's let's go back to yours, to your choice. You know, here's the problem. I, I'm all talk. I really haven't played that many war games, which is why I have other people here talking about it so I could hide. <laughs> <laughs> this is the reason why there's four people on this show is because I'm I'm worthless. Yeah, the year of war gaming, we've only covered like three war games so far, and you know. 
this is tripled the amount of talk we've had on war games in the last year. Um, Just so it's clear, by the way, the idea for the year of war gaming was entirely Albert. Oh yeah, and I love the idea, and I love the idea of playing war games. My problem is that too many of them are too big. They really are, and the kind of games I want to play, I just don't have the time for them. Sure. Like I, I want to play more of the coin games. It, it just can't happen. Sure. Yeah, and it's and, and they are, and that's the. That is the problem. I mean, I really enjoy uh, one of my favorite war games that's come out recently has been Enemy Coast Ahead, the Dam Buster Raid, and I really enjoy that system. And I, but the campaign of that game is you know four or five hours, and I I'm not going to I don't have, I haven't had the time recently to be able to do that at all. You see, I had that one end up getting rid of it because. I played the first part, which you know you, you learn you learn first the end end part of the campaign, which is where you're delivering the bomb, the actual fly, flying over the dam and dropping the bomb. Then before then you add the segment before that, which is flying from I guess from England to where the dam is, and that's you learn that part. Now you, you're playing the game with those two, and then you add the first part, which is training your pilots and all this, and that's what makes the full campaign game. I, I just never got past the first part, and I, I didn't find it interesting enough to, to want to play that over and over by itself. I, I realized that you really need to add more. And it wasn't gonna, it just wasn't going to happen. There wasn't the time. I, I, yeah, it's the same problem I'm having. Mm-hmm. Very different than my problem. I, I will say I haven't played, like you guys are naming, this war game, that war game. I don't really feel like, I think I mentioned this before, I don't feel like I've really played any war game. I don't really feel like I've played any. Um, and when it comes down to it, a lot of the time I want to, you know, sort of broaden my gamer horizon and broaden my experience level and, and play some of these games. But I simply never have because when it comes down to it, I'm like, well, what's the next game I want to play? And like Terraforming Mars comes out. I'm like, boy, I really, really think I'm going to like Terraforming Mars. I played lots of other games like that and I know I like that. And I have no idea if I'm going to like Napoleon War. I, I I don't know. I've never done anything like that. So why don't I get the one that I know I like or really expect that I like as opposed to, you know, the wild card. And I I still just never have played it. And that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Now, I just got the from P500, uh, Conquest of Paradise, and I'm really looking forward to playing that. Yes. I, that looks really interesting. I love the idea of, of exploring the South Pacific. See, when, when I think of this game, I think it's amazing what these people did going off in the South Pacific in a little tiny boat, basically having no idea when they're going to see land again and just mm-hmm. going off and doing that. And, and so I, I want to play because of that. I edited I edited the second edition rulebook on that and the, and the solo rules and everything, and I'm just like, I want a copy. I want a copy of this game is <laughs> what, what I want. And it's not a war game. It's a 4X. It's an exploration game. That's all it is. But it's... Super, but it's just super neat. Super, neat. I just love. I like the way that designers take their games and say, "Well, let's just twist it and let's make this make this different." Well, if you are somewhat involved in the rules, can you tell them to to upload the latest version of the rulebook to the website? Because when I went to download it the other day and read it a PDF, it didn't have the solo rules in there. You know, um, you you sending an email to them would do just as good as me sending an email. <laughs> yeah, but I'm lazier. <laughs> <laughs> Valid. So does the second edition have solo rules built in? Because yes. I remember the first edition, you had to buy an expansion through the magazine or something, if I remember right. Yeah, it's built into it. And it's mm-hmm. really the biggest difference, I think. Most of the other differences yeah. are just cosmetic. 
I need to play that one too. Should we should we start talking about Agricola? Well, Agricola, Messer Britain, is a game by Tom Russell and his new company, him and his wife's new company, Holland Spiel, and it's a solo only game where you play Agricola, the um, Roman general, and you're fighting off natives. It's really about it. <laughs> that's the there's your historical flavor. I could go grab the back of the box and read it to some people, but that's <laughs> you could you could probably get that right off of BGG <laughs> easier. Yep. And what time period is this? I don't know. Is it? I'm just, I am curious. Is it like AD? First century. This is like uh, 55 AD. This is a uh, ye old times. Very old times. Yeah, very early first century. Britain has already been somewhat conquered, and now you're trying to, to to pacify the natives and get complete control. In the history of this game, Britain was conquered uh, maybe within the last 10 or 20 years, but not terribly well. It hasn't been maintained well by the Romans. Uh, the previous conquerors let a lot of forts go back into native control. They weren't able to control it. So Agricola comes in, I think, in the 50s, the 050s, and is able to retake those forts, is able to conquer people that have never been conquered before. He goes further north, um, even has uh, some brief success in Scotland, um, you know, which is very top of the island, very hard to uh, to get to in, in those those times um he and he had a successful fort built there at one point so he conquered almost the entire island and uh, his success was was going great everything was fine and then he got recalled back to rome uh, after what 30 years on england and it went right back to the way it was before uh, rome lost their control of the island pretty quickly because further generals were not able to maintain it as he did so you're playing through basically the period of time that the uh, general Agricola was in charge of the uh, British conquest. And he was recalled, interestingly enough, because he was being too successful. And they were worried that he was going to be so successful he may end up taking over and becoming emperor at some point. Yeah, and and that's that's a theory. He was outshining the actual emperor who was not having as many successes against the Germanic tribes and, and other areas where he was trying to uh, exert Roman control. Okay. That's true. I guess you never really know why why they make choices like. So it's a solo game. It's uh you're you're playing as the Romans, right? And it's a point to point map, which is really neat. Yep. Um, the map is divided divided into like five or six different regions, I guess. Four and I'm, I'm saying this off my memory. It's four enemy regions, plus the southern region, plus your camps. Mm-hmm. I really like how this game handles the politics. Also, the you know the, you mentioned that they start friendly, but that could change throughout the game. You have three cups in which you put units: is a friendly cup, a neutral cup, basically, and a hostile cup. Mm-hmm. And you could move units from cup to cup based on on your actions and what happens in the game. 
In fact, they're they're constantly shifting from cup, cup to cup based on your actions. That's the number one thing you do in this game is move units from <laughs> cup to cup. <laughs> blindly. You're blindly moving units. Yes. random Randomly drawing from one cup and putting them into another cup. <laughs> yeah, that was neat. Yeah, and so you don't really know who is on your side. And in fact, in the rules, whenever you go and you pull and you draw friendly uh, you draw friendly units on kind of in the housekeeping phase, you actually aren't supposed to look into the cup before you draw, right? And so it is a, oh, I spent the money and I'm going to draw three units and oh, dang, I only have one because I they've been shifting back and forth between these three cups. Well, Oh man, that sucks, <laughs> you know. And you you just kind of it's it's almost like Agricola going back to to home base and saying, "All right, we need some more we need some more fighters out there." And they're like, "Oh no, they've they've already deserted." Now, I thought you spent the money one at a time, so that you could you could buy one, then buy another, and then buy another. That that was my understanding. I spent the money one at a time, but I may have read the rules wrong. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I I I don't remember right now, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> I try to read the rules in the way that benefits me the most, so... <laughs> that's the right way. In a solo game, that's how you read them, right? <laughs> I've played I played too much Age of Steam in my life, which just ends up being... Oh, what's... <laughs> you just ask it, it... Small tangent, you go on BoardGameGeek and say, someone I always ask these questions about Age of Steam, and um, and then it gets to a point where they just go, well, what is it this or is it this? And they go, well, what's the... What's the what's the rule mindset that's going to hurt you the most? And they go, well, it'll be this one. I'm like, well, that, that's that's how the game works. And so I, <laughs> I just have this really, really bad habit of, well, that just hurts more. So that's that's the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will do that sometimes with solitaire games. If it if it seems like it can make it more difficult and more interesting because of that, then I will go with a harder. Ch- with these cups, you do actually ha- have some idea what's going to be in them because. After you fight a battle, you put a bunch of units in the cups, and you know what you're putting into it. So you kind of have a sense of some, somewhat of the mix. But it's true, you don't really know what's in a cup. For example, um, th- there's three generals in the game, which are bad. They fight against you, three leaders, tribal leaders. And one of them starts in the hostile cup, I think, and two in the neutral cup. And so you're likely to draw the hostile one early on actually because there aren't going to be that many counters in that cup but the other two they first got to get to the hostile cup by by moving counters around and then you have to draw it so those are less likely to show up i was just gonna say it's interesting because because all the cups are preceded to a degree and so you're right i mean you you have a general idea of how of what's going to happen but I've gotten in. I've gotten in places that you have these neutral cups that are the um, I forgot their names. The the red units in the game, and and they start off not not friendly, but they start off unfriendly. which is the as you said the neutral cup, and you're shifting so many things around, and you're moving some units into the friendly cup, and you're moving some of the unfriendly units into the hostile cup. And you're just not really paying too much attention, and then I've drawn those guys out really early in the game, including a leader, and you just kind of go, well, there go my chances in in this game, and it's an action point. Um, it's an action point allowance game. You get X amount of point. You get X amount of actions at the beginning of every single round, and that's that's what you use. Yeah, the, if you have that red leader out early on, that'd be frustrating because some of the actions you can't do if there's a leader on the map, and the red leader stays on the map from turn to turn while the other ones go back into the cups. 
So yeah, that would totally change the game. Yep. It's pretty uh it's pretty outrageous. Um what I what I do like about it is because you know, people people like like solo games for different reasons and the types of games that they like are really dependent on what the victory conditions are a lot of times. Like you have people that are, you know, I, I personally don't mind chasing just a high score, you know, like I'll, that's why I don't mind playing Rosenberg games solo. And then someone an outright victory, like, okay, I have defeated everything. I win, or I survived until the end. Um, what I like about Agricola is that there is, um, there's a victory point threshold for every single round. There are eight rounds. You're supposed to, you need to survive until the end, but if you don't hit this number of victory points amassed that round, then you then you lose. And I like that because it it very slightly forces me to think about what the actions that I'm going to use, and it, it in in terms of it actually dictating what actions I need to take. I was like, I only have five actions. Three of them are going to be this. Two of them, I need to do this to upgrade these guys or drop this thing, drop this garrison over here that's going to get upgraded later or whatever it is. I just, I need to make sure that I'm doing these actions so that I can get this stuff happening so that I can continue on to the next round. And so I like that it kind of very mildly guides you in one direction or the other. Yeah, but I do like the victory points, and maybe we're jumping ahead to the end of the game here a little bit, but the victory points can be earned in a variety of ways, so you have to pursue paths to get those, but you do have some leeway in what what method you're going to, to go, whether it's by promoting your combat units to be stronger or by trying to um, you know, convert the natives to the Roman way of life by building settlements. Um, you know, and obviously you're probably going to be doing some combination of those, but you do have some leeway in how you advance from round to round, and what what style of uh, of play you wish to pursue. It, it it's it's nice. It, it's a nice way to do it. It's not just, and it's not all combat driven either. I mean, you can get points. You literally can get points by passing, and then every additional action um, that you didn't take counts as a point. And so, by not combating, you can. You can you can get points, and so I like that it's not just one way or the other. It's not just how many units you destroyed, but uh, just as you said, Chris, a vast majority uh, of 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 ways to get it. It's I don't want to use the term point salad because that's not that's definitely not describing this game in any stretch of the imagination. But um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a really interesting way to do it. It's more of a point snack plate. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I did like that. It seems like that you do have choices, but you sort of have to pursue all of them. It almost felt like. And that that point threshold at the end of each round, there's eight turns in the game, and you get um, what five action allowances per turn. Um, except for turn one, you only get three action points, but every other turn you get five. So you have these actions you can pursue to get the victory points, and that number of victory points increases substantially as the game goes along so in the first turn uh to to move on to the second turn you only have to get three victory points in the turn um turn two you need eight Uh, by turn five you need 30 and at the end of the game to to win the game you need to actually have 75 victory points yep so you've got to be amassing these things like um exponentially as the game goes along because it starts getting a lot harder to do that. Has anyone on the call 
actually beaten the game with 75 victory points and the red general uh, off the map. Nope. Nope. I thought I was getting close my last game, and then I went into the red territories to fight, and I had that battle. I forget. It's the, the one name battle in the game, and I just lost there. I was not ready for it. But I got myself in a situation where I had to do the battle, where I was not going to be able to advance the game anyway. Is there any randomness in the battles? There is. Every time you go to fight a unit, each unit has a, an aggression number on it. It'll be somewhere between two and six, I think. You roll, and then on top of that, you roll a D8, and you add that to the to his aggression number. And then you look up on a chart, and it'll tell you how many counters you're going to draw to fight against. So the, the units farther to the south tend to be lower numbers. As you head north, the, their aggression levels are higher, so you're going to end up fighting larger armies. And then when you do the battle, so you draw these counter these battle counters randomly for the enemy. Some are easier, some are harder. And you lay them on a map, and then you lay your units in front of them. And so you have two armies face-to-face fighting each other. Like two phalanxes, I guess. And, um... And the combat's actually pretty neat. So you're trying to eliminate the units and, and make holes in the army. And you got to have some strategies about each unit can attack two different units. And a lot of times you, you want to pick the right one. And it can be hard to decide which is the right one, which is pretty neat. And there are ways that you can separate out units um, as as well. So by what Albert would say is that you create these holes and you're able to separate out what these units. Um, and if you're able to, and in certain circumstances, and that unit actually just goes away and you don't actually don't have to fight that unit the next round and so there's a lot of really i mean it's really simplistic um but it's really interesting because it's you're not just willy-nilly running in there with your dudes i mean you're you have to be a little more intentional about who you're bringing in there mm-hmm, that's right and then if you if you win the battle which i think it's actually not that hard to do early on unless like me you, you just totally don't pay attention and, and go in completely wrong and lose in the first turn. Did you all print off a copy of the game, or did you actually buy a copy of the game? I purchased a box edition. Same here. Mine is a printed copy that I made myself, because they, they do sell this as a print-and-play game. Mm-hmm. So you could buy the, the print-and-play, you could buy the box. Do they also sell a bag edition? I don't. Th- I think it's a boxed or a print-and-play. Um, And the counters are nice. They're very thick. They're sort of like the Victory Point game counters. Is the art and quality of the design up to par? Yes. My, my only complaint is the counters. Each counter has the, the region name on it. I could not read that sometimes. It was so tiny. And I put on my reading glasses, and even then, it, it was hard to make it out a few times. There's a few cities where, yeah, with, with the, there's two names that are similar, and I had trouble telling them apart. You know, my first... Um... The, the first copy, or not first copy, whenever I, when I got the game, my first set of counters were actually misprinted. Um, and I played, I guess, three or four games that way. And um, just shot a message to Holland Spiel. And they were like, oh, no, we'll, we'll, we'll send you out a new one. And so they didn't send me out, obviously, a full game, but they sent me out new counters. And it was like, oh, this is so clear. <laughs> I can actually read where I'm supposed to put these guys now. Oh, so nice. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, and my counter sheet, the the one side I can't read because the, the text is cut off, but the other side is just fine. It's just it's just small is the only issue. I've played it, I think I've played this game five times now, and I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed my plays. I feel, I feel the game, I feel the game can go a little long sometimes, um, 
because it is a little repetitive in terms of what you're doing. You know, um, there are what five different actions that you could choose from, and you have it with special abilities based on your leader. Um, and so it's a little states of siege in terms of the point to point map and the point to point movement. Um, but you are actually traversing through the countryside instead of them all coming to you. Um, and you actually have three legions that you are leading instead of just one solitary um, center, basically. And so, it, it, so it's, it's really interesting, but it can be hard because there is that constraint of there are only five actions to turn. And this is this is really interesting, and I find I do find this next part interesting is that you have to move before you do an action. And so if there is not an action for you to do because you either can't afford it financially or you don't want to do it, then you can't move your counter. <laughs> and so I, and so I find that a really, really interesting constraint because there have been a couple times that I just need to move this this guy one space, but it's like, ah, but to do that, I have to perform an action. There's nothing for it to fight. I, I guess I'm going to do the the action that costs me money and if it and if you run out of money you lose the game and so i'm like well i guess he's just not going to activate this round is what ends up happening yeah you know i i, I think this is myself uh interpreting the rule to my favor i i've decided that the passing action lets me move also because it's an act and i think if i question the designer about that i'll find out i'm wrong so i'm just not gonna question. it's probably smarter <laughs> i don't know if it helped or not though so we should probably talk about the kind of actions you can do in the game. I mean, we've kind of talked about how the the game is set up and and combat briefly, but um, every turn you've got five actions that you can choose from, and I think you can do do them multiple times if you wanted to. There, there's no restriction on on uh, how many times you can do these actions, but. There's um, you have a few choices as Agricola when you when you move your combat unit. Um, you know if you move into an area that doesn't have anyone in it, you don't have to do any kind of combat or something. Um, or if you move into a unit that do, or, or a, a box that does have some enemy units in it, then you have some choices depending on how many enemy units are are in that box. So you have uh, the option of suppressing units and that that happens if there's only uh two or less units in that box so you don't have to fight a full combat in that one um you can remove one of the units through through doing that um or if there there's more than uh, three units three or four units then you have to go to combat um when you when you move in there and that's where You'll you'll add up their their resistance value, which is one of the values that's on the counter. And I thought that this part's a little bit fiddly, but it, it's okay for for every tribe. There's this little chart that comes with the game, and you roll a die based on the the resistance number on the counter, and add it. And it's the eight sided die, so it could be from one to eight. And you add it to that resistance value, and that tells you how many units you're going to be fighting. So there's a little bit of a random element where you could end up fighting three three units and win very easily, or you could roll an eight, add it to that resistance number. So then you'll look up that combined number, cross-reference it with the the tribe that you're fighting, and that tells you how many units you'll be fighting. So 
that's one of the interesting things in this game is that there's just a generic army. There, there's no difference between the tribes. So uh, on the map, the only thing you see on these tribes is the resistance number. All of the fighting takes place off map with, with these generic army units that you just draw randomly out of a cup, um, which is, you know, I think that, that works fine in the game, but it's, um, it, it's, it's, I, I think one of the things it shows is that this is an area of history that we don't know a lot about. We've talked a lot about Napoleonics. You know, people will freak out if the boot color is wrong on the counters. <laughs> and in this game, we don't know hardly anything about these tribes that were living in Britain during this time. They didn't have a written form of communication, so there's no written records. Um, their oral traditions are are almost entirely lost to us. I mean, we outside of some archaeology uh, of of the Roman forts and things like that. We don't know much about anything that happened during this period. And everything that this game is based on is from one source. Uh, Agricola's father-in-law wrote a book about him, which has, which has survived uh, basically telling like, here's the history of all of his conquests and stuff. And there could certainly be things in there that are favoring to the Romans and not to the Britons. Um, and and he didn't really care very much about you know this tribe has this unique culture and this tribe really you know has has this style of fighting like there there's not a lot of detail in his writings um, and the, there's only one named battle in this game and I think that's because there's only one named battle that we know of <laughs> in the book there's only one named general from all of the Britons. You know, who were their leaders? Who We don't know any of that. So we just have these generic leader counters uh, and generic fighter counters. We don't know anything about the makeup of the army. So in some ways, uh, the designer, Tom, his his best guess here is as good as anybody's because you when you battle, you, you roll a die to see how many units you're going to fight. And then you draw units out of a cup and plan out your battle from there. So there's not a simulation in the sense that we know here's how big their armies were or here's what their fighting style was or here's what they were armed with or really any of that kind of information we're we're taking some educated guesses here but still guesses educated (laughs) guesses off a book written by his father-in-law so you know that's also biased too but we do know that i mean we have found the forts uh i believe even the fort in scotland like Many, many of these Roman-era forts that were built under Agricola's reigns, the ruins have been found, and the walls that they built have been found. So we do know that he did have forts, he did have subjugation, he did have settlements throughout Britain, but the history of how they came to be is, you know, just all in, entirely from from this guy's father-in-law, which... It's good that we have that much, but uh, you know, it's not like this is something that you can argue over historical details a lot about. And so, so you mentioned the the battle and the was it the subjugation, right? And those are two actions you could take, and both of those. Yeah, sorry, I yeah. got off on a tangent there. <laughs> and so, both of those, when when you take them, you also then have to move counters in the cups. And in this case, both of those they're they're negative effects in that you're moving cups from the friendly side towards the hostile side 
not necessarily from friendly to hostile cup, but in that general direction. And then on top of that, afterwards you have hostile tribe reactions, um, which depending on what you're doing, if you're suppressing people, then you have two hostile tribe reactions. Um, and there's a quote that says the Britons dwelt much. Mu- I'm sorry, the Britons dwelt much amongst themselves on the miseries of subjection, compared their wrongs, and exaggerated them in discussion. And that is from Tacitus. And it's just interesting because these hostile tribe reactions are um, are really just kind of putting more units out on the map. But depending on whatever you're doing depends on how many of those hostile tribe reactions actually pop up. So like a garrison action, there's only one. Or a peacekeeping action, there's only one. Um but with a battle action and a suppress action, there are two. And so you're pulling more chits out and laying them on the board, the more uh, powerful things you actually want to do in the game. Yeah, and I think there, you mentioned that those have that negative effect. The, the other actions you can do with your action points would be leaving a garrison, which is considered um, you know, bringing Roman culture um, you know, you, you, you're leaving a, a part of the guard to kind of form the early stages of a settlement. In fact, the garrisons later on in the game, and I'm jumping ahead a little, but the garrisons can be turned into settlements, um, which which uh, works from that cultural perspective of trying to subjugate the uh, the British people. But as you leave garrisons behind, that actually has a more positive effect of making an unfriendly unit or a neutral unit move into the friendly cup. And that friendly cup is where you can uh, recruit auxiliary warriors from later on in the game. So, you spending these action points to leave garrisons and stuff, you know, it doesn't help you in the sense of, you know, conquesting more people, but it does get you, you know, on that path toward the subjugation victory points of the game. And, and the garrisons end up being really important because because you can make those settlements, right? But if there is a general on the board, you can't take that action, right? No, no, uh, it's a, a peacekeeping. Uh, if there's a general on the board, you can't do peacekeeping, but I believe you can still do uh, the garrison. Travis, am I right on that? No, tribal leader effect says prevents you from taking the garrison action. Yep. And it's okay. and typically Sorry. and typically the tribal leader effects are in the region. So it's not just any tribal leader on the board. It's typically a tribal leader in. Oh, just in the region. That's right. That's right. You could have the 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 green tribal leader in the green region, and you could be in the red region and drop off a garrison if you want to. But then the problem with dropping off a garrison is that you're taking one of your units and converting them into the garrison. So you're saying, hey, I don't need you in my army anymore. I need you to watch over the garrison and that's it. And so then you now you obviously you have to recruit more and you have to rec- recruit more auxiliaries and t- just tough decisions. It is. And recruiting new units, um, new Roman units is hard because you spend victory points to do that. You know, there's many times I wanted to get a couple more units and I, I just couldn't. Yeah, but the uh, the peacekeeping action, that's the one where if there's a tribal leader anywhere on the board, whether it's the named one or one of the random ones, even if it's in a region that you're not in, uh, you can't do it. And, and the peacekeeping, all it does, it uses an action point, um, but you, you draw a unit out of the hostile cup randomly, you pick one, and you stick it into the neutral cup. So it is moving people... In, in that more friendly direction and that's fewer units that are going to pop up on the board to attack you 
uh, as you conduct other actions that make you know the the hostile units come out onto the board um, and and then you have to fight them later so uh, peacekeeping actually moves them out of that cup so that that won't happen there is some definite strategy in the game that is less about the actions that you're doing and more about moving the units between the individualized cups um, to to help balance out what's going on. And I know I found myself a few times to where my hostile cup was getting very, very full. And I'm like, mm, I need to move these guys. Time to do some actions that are going to remove these and put them into a different cup because... I did it because I knew all of the leaders were in there. It's like, okay, time to move them out. So, but that that summarizes uh, your actions, I think. So, as you said, you you move one of the legions. So you have three legions on the board, and then they're, they're just marked with a counter. There's just a counter that's like Legion One, Legion Two, Legion Three, uh, and they all have a name in tiny little font. Um, but there's a separate holding box off board on on your kind of player you know the the i don't know what they'd call it the battle board battle mat yeah uh, yeah the battle mat um that has in addition to the area where you line up your troops for battle it also holds all of the units that are attached to that legion so that's all of your legionnaires as well as your auxiliary units go into these separate boxes so as you move these counters the legion one and legion two counters are on the board you know what units uh are are being moved they're but this is a small map. This is just like a letter-sized piece of paper uh, map. So you're not going to be moving, you know, six units around or or whatever it is. You're moving one counter, and then everything is off board, just so you know what is attached to to that unit. And Agricola, obviously, hints Agricola. He is the one leader that we have. And he has his own bonus actions that you're able to do before you do your regular actions, but it could only be for um, it could only be for the legion that Agricola is present in. Um, and so you could reorganize your legion. Um, you can do a um, you could attach the leader, right? So that's that's moving Agricola to a different to a different uh, different legion. You could reorganize your legion, which would be. Um, legions that are adjacent to each other um they you can shift around uh, you can shift around the units within each one and then there's a negotiation action which is really interesting the negotiation action is a bribe basically and so you can spend between one and seven coins and then you roll the die and you add the total number of coins spent to the results and if the modified die roll exceeds the that resistance rating that's on the individual unit um, then it is successful, and you place that travel unit directly into the friendly cup. Um, I have never had enough money to make this a viable option on a consistent basis. Or I end up doing a, well, I'll just spend $3 on this one, and then I roll a 2, and the resistance rating is a 6. That's more what happens every single time. And I just go, ah, this is a dumb action. I'm just going to reorganize instead. <laughs> Barely ever worth it, it seems. And, and this game is frustrating because... You always, uh, any ties are in the uh, other side's favor. Yeah, and that's any ties, any time in the game ever. Like in combat or negotiations, those ties do not work in your favor. It's strange oh, yeah. that that D8, <laughs> that D8 plus the amount of money I spend almost always results in a tie. Oh, you know, I, I, I didn't use the D8 that came with the game. I changed it right away. I just didn't trust it. That worked out pretty well. 
Maybe that's my problem. I had a I had a roll of combat where I was going through each of my units, and all I had to do is roll like a three or above, and I would defeat. You know, this is early in the game when I'm fighting the tan units are not very strong, and I'm rolling that die and I'm getting one, two, one, two. Like I go through an entire line of combat and hit like one one dude. It was so frustrating. <laughs> With a D eight, you should not be rolling a two that much. It feels like the combat is interesting here because it's not that hard to to defeat the units honestly but if you make some bad rows when when they hit back it, it can really hurt like if you're facing off one unit you're probably going to win if you're facing off two units that that's they could be devastating easily so what i think is really interesting with the way they handled combat here is that the legionnaires if you compare the legionnaires to these generic um british fighting counters the British fighting counters have much better stats. They have a higher defense and they have a higher attack value. So if you're just looking at the counters, you think, well, well man, I, there's yeah, how in the world am I going to do this? But the way they handle both attacking and defending, so and I'm talking Roman attacking and Roman defending from British attacks, is that you roll a die on, on your attack and you add it to your attack value. So your attack value might only be two or three and you're fighting against someone that has a defense value of six. So you think there's no way that I'm going to overtake this, but you roll an, the eight-sided die and you add whatever is to it to your attack value. So it's actually, the, the odds are pretty good in your favor that you're going to, to defeat them, especially early in the game um, when you're fighting... Uh, you know, a fewer number of units and you've got more more legionnaires that can kind of gang up on them. And then the defending is the same way. Uh, they have a high attack value and you have a much lower defensive value. But when they attack, you roll the die and add that to your defensive value. So they might be attacking you with a power of five or six to your defensive value of three, but you're you're rolling a die. So really all you have to do is roll a three or above on this eight-sided die and it's amazing how much that doesn't happen, but um, you know that that's that's how they they handle that combat. Um, the other thing interesting in combat is that the the row and they, I'm just all they have is a little grid of squares that um, you know there's one square for each combat unit of the Britons, and then right below it is a square for each combat unit of the Legionnaires and their auxiliary fighters. But they're offset, so it's like the squares are kind of stacked, so you're you're always adjacent to two other squares. So you can be attacked multiple times. Um, you know, your unit will be attacked by the Britons twice. You'll have to defend against two attacks. But when you're attacking, you can only choose one to fight against. So the game does give some balance, even though you probably will decimate with your eight-sided die. Unless it's me rolling, and then you'll you'll miss them all. Um, even though, like the odds are probably in your favor that you're going to win, you can attack as much as the Britons can, and you'll probably, you know, most likely you'll be able to defend them. But they are going to have those lucky hits where you roll the one on your defense, and you're you know you're fighting against two people. Maybe you survive the first one, and then you roll a, a one on the second one. So. Just the fact that you have to defend more, even though you have a better odd of surviving it, the fact that you have to do it more than the Britons do, adds in um, you know more chances for you to die. It, it gives the, a greater um, simulation to the game of you know, or, or makes makes that solo aspect of the simulation more difficult. And it's important to note if you ever 
lose a battle, all of your units die. <laughs> Game's over. Game over immediately. <laughs> like you're you're just dead. Um, so you've like like you can you can win a battle against. You know, I've I've taken in four legionnaire troops and two auxiliary troops. So I've got like six units versus um, nine or uh-huh. ten Britons, and you can win that. Um, but it's also possible, you know, it can go the other way easily with some bad rolls. So you do have to be prepared, and you do have to be lucky. There's there's definitely that random element of chance, and and you can mitigate that as best as you can. But there's nothing you can do to mitigate rolling a one. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> But the the placement of your units ends up mattering also, right? Because if you have a couple strong mm-hmm. units, you don't necessarily want to put them right next to each other. You want to space them out because each yeah. strong unit will kill could potentially kill every other unit on the opposite side. And mm-hmm. and generally, you don't put out your units until you see what the enemy has done. And again, that's random. You're just drawing units out of a cup, but you put them in these squares. And they're they're labeled with numbers yeah. one two three four five. You put them in in order, so they're randomly deployed, and then you get to deploy your units. But if there's one of those random tribal units or tribal leaders, then you have to deploy first. So if if you're attacking um, an area that has a tribal leader and you don't have Agricola with you, then you have to deploy your units first, sight unseen, and then their units get drawn still randomly but you can't like reorder your units to try to put them in a better position or something so yeah. so we're running kind of long on this we should probably go real quick to the the end of turn stuff and then just give our thoughts on this because mm-hmm. at this point it is it is pretty late yeah and i think we've covered the game pretty well but yeah you're right we need to talk about housekeeping and then maybe some final thoughts on the game and um and I don't know does, if Julian have, have we been clear? Do you have any questions on how the game's played? Since you haven't played it, you might be a good uh, good surrogate for the audience here. Nope, I think I, I think I pretty well got an idea of it. I can't really form a good opinion of it myself, but I think I got it there. And I'm sorry, I said Julian. I meant Julius. My apologies. <laughs> no worries. All right. So so the housekeeping phase, right? There's there's what eight steps to it. One of them, if there's too many enemy units next to one of your forts or settlements, they're going to attack you. That never happened for me. No. Then there's going to be a tribal de-escalation where you may get to remove some units if you have plus three settlements. And this is great. If you've built those settlements and they're you've got them up to the highest level of plus three, this is really a sieve game. Um you you get to remove enemy units from that region. And that's a great way to, to control those enemies. And not only do you remove them, but they end up going into your friendly cup, potentially. Besides the, the tribal de-escalation, then there's Romanization, which is basically, if I remember right, that's putting the units back into the cups. Um, It's it's examining the um the, the dead pool, everybody who had, oh, yes. who had died throughout throughout battles, and then sorting them to where they need to go, which could place them in a cup. It could actually place them on a map, uh, just depending on depending on you know th- those those issues. And on that, by the way, I do love that this board. If you're an X Men or Marvel fan, it says Deadpool on the board. <laughs> you know, it's just awesome to have that same. Uh, that I, I picture the Deadpool from the movie Deadpool, you know, that board they had of who's going to die that day, and that's where you stick all your uh, your dead Britons and dead Legionnaires, so that's kind of awesome. That is cool. <laughs> all right, so, so next we have income. Um, you start the game with, I think it was like four money or something, and each round you're going to gain three more money. 
Um, if you build plus three settlements, your your income rate goes up by two for every plus three settlements. So you could mm. make a lot of money later on, which is nice. <laughs> the uh, then you could buy auxiliary units with your money. You could draw units from the friendly cup and add them to your armies, which is one at a time. You do that one. Yes, one at a time. And yep, and it's a uh, one one gold coin per per unit, and you don't get to know which unit you're drawing. So maybe you get one that's not as awesome, but. You know, it's luck of the but draw. But once you've drawn them, you could then decide which of the three armies to put them in, and and you could put two two of these auxiliary units per Roman unit, right? So so you could play it a little bit if, if you got a ton of money, and you could keep drawing and putting them in the army you're not going to use for a while or something. That was never a problem for me. I never had that much money that I was like, oh, I only have six legionnaires and I've got 13 <laughs> auxiliary units. What am, that never was an issue well, you know, for me. Towards the end of my game, I, I, did have, I didn't spend all my money and I, I earned more than the max. So I didn't even get to use it. So I should have been buying more units. Um, so anyway, so that, that's the income. Then the auxiliaries, I mentioned that. And then the public works. This is where you could upgrade your, your um, settlements and garrisons you spend was it three coin two coins per yep and finally or no that was public's works uh victory points and new legions then then you do that point salad and spend some victory points on legions if you want to and finally move some counters towards a hostile direction I think one from the friendly cup to the neutral cup and four from the neutral cup to the hostile cup. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the hostile cup is always well stocked in this game. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's basically it, right? And then finally, check your victory points. If you have more than you needed for that round, you go on to the next. So, so yeah, it's a whole game. I liked it. I liked it a lot. It was a lot. It's a lot of fun. I enjoyed moving. Like, like you said, Travis, it is a little bit long, um, especially the first game because I was constantly referring to the rule book. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, it, it definitely speeds up as you go. <laughs> and I'm I'm at that weird point that I still that I would love to have a player aid that just says the five actions, what goes from what cup to another cup, and what money I have to spend for it to happen. You know, like it, I I know it's in the book, and the book is not a large book, but it's still just like. What is that thing again that I have to do? Oh, yeah, that's great. I wish I had like a little quarter-sized piece of paper that explained it as well. If I had any complaint about this game, it's the player aid that lists, you know, it, it has a little summary of here's your Legion actions, here's your Agricola actions. It doesn't say anything. It just lists here's the actions you can do. And if you don't remember, you know, especially in your first few games, now what happens on the suppress action or how, what happens on peacekeeping? It's, there's just no info there. So you, you can see, okay, here's my, here's my five things I can choose to do, but you're constantly going back to the rule book in that first game or two. Um, you know, and there's not a lot of little Chrome rules that you're only going to be referring to once or twice, but just as you're learning the game, learning now what, what did, what did that action do again? Or what could Agricola do at the start of the turn? Um, you know, housekeeping rules, the first few turns, I'm, I'm just reading through that page of the rule book at the end of every turn. And I would love the player aid to have a little bit more info. And I, I feel like maybe they made an error putting, there's there's all the charts 
for you know how many units every every battle is going to have and and then if the tribes go to war with each other which is something we didn't talk about but kind of a cool little feature of the game so there's all these charts on the game on the same page as the player aid information and and i think maybe that should have been two separate pages because the player aid by as it is right now is not much of an aid it's 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 barely a reference for like you know here's a at a thirty thousand foot view here's the things you can do but it's not going to refresh your memory on the rules at all this game gets large enough or one of us gets not lazy and someone will make someone will make one yeah that's true it'll end up in the file section on bgg at some point a nice little refresher summary i'm for me for me, I really enjoyed it. Um, anything that says that is booked as a solo war game, I immediately get excited about. Um, it, it, it at least piques my interest. And I remember um, reading through the rules before it came out and just going, that, that there's once again, I'm a systems person, right? And so for me, I'm like, man, there's some really cool systems in this game. I'll go ahead and pick it up. And it was, you know, $25 plus shipping or something like that. And it was just super, super cheap. I'm like, I've spent far more on games that I have not played before. Yeah, yeah, I've I've enjoyed it. Um, and Hollenspiel, they were really good to work with whenever I started, um, whenever I had those counter issues. Mary was super quick and just, yep, sure, we'll get it out to you. And it was at my doorstep in two or three days. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I've really, really enjoyed really enjoyed my plays of it um i i need to play it more it's one of those it's also one of those games like sometimes in states of siege games you get oh i don't know 15 percent into the game and you go i'm i'm losing this like you i might as well just pack it up shuffle the cards again and, and play again i feel that way with this game sometimes that i'm you know i'm 15 or 20 minutes into it and going hmm yeah no i'm gonna lose i'm i can just tell and you can just feel it in your gut and um sometimes i've just packed it up and gone well that's it and then sometimes i've plowed through and sure enough four turns later yep i'm i'm out <laughs> well and you, you, can, you can do the math on this one too you can say all right i i need to hit this level of victory points on turn four and i ain't gonna do it so you know there's even you can feel it in your gut but you can also like do the cold hard calculations on i need to do these four things to reach that victory point level and i can only do three of them yeah it happens it, and it's a it's a tough thing to figure out as well <laughs> that it's a and it's a hard pill to swallow whenever you're deep into the game and go oh yeah i really can't do anything else okay well that's good game you know I, I, any solitaire game can be frustrating to lose but you know you can put a lot of time into this one because it does it does take a little while to play this um, and if you lose on turn five or six, that that can be frustrating. Of like you've put so much in and you can't even make it to the end of the game. That victory point loss thing feels a little bit arbitrary. Like I don't have a clear sense of why um, that exists from like you know a, a simulation of the history standpoint. I, I mean I understand from the game mechanics you've got to be achieving these certain goals, but it's like you know the turn has ended, your units are still strong. Like, what would be the reason historically that you couldn't go on, you know, and fight another day um, just because you don't have X number of victory points? So that that feels a little gamey to me, but I understand, like, from that game mechanic perspective why it's there. Maybe it's just a, 
you're going to get recalled to Britain if you're, or to Rome if you're not doing well enough. Yeah, that could be. You, you get called back to Rome early or something. <laughs> so And so this game is, is available from the publisher's website, and it's $30. Yeah, and since I'm the print-and-play patrol guy, I'll comment, too, that this is, uh, I think, $12 to purchase the PDF file. And they have a link to that on the same page that you could buy the boxed edition. And the nice thing with making this game is everything is on letter-sized paper. So you don't need to cut apart maps. You don't need to you know, glue multi-page maps together. Everything just prints on one piece of paper. And there's 88 counters. They're double-sided. So you know you do have to align the two sides and probably put some cardboard in between to make them thick. But as far as war games go that you print yourself, this one is pretty easy to make. The hard part is finding an eight-sided die somewhere. <laughs> I've got a spare. So that's I, you know I've got a box <laughs> of dice and eight sides wasn't one of them in there. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I, I went through my big box of dice and I was surprised how few d eights I had. It's not a common. It's not a common size, but it does work well. Like I like, I like the math and the ratios that this game uses. Like I think they, they make very good use of that eight sided die and combat and, 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 uh, you know, the other areas where you roll a die. Yeah. That was interesting because a lot of times, you know, it's, Oh, I need to get a three to, to succeed in this battle. And, you know, in the D six, three is not so great necessarily but with a D eight, you know, it's easy. And for a, fir- a second, I didn't even realize it because I'm so used to D sixes, but then I'd roll it and it's like, Oh, Oh yeah, I got a seven. No big deal. That's Agricola master of Britain. Yeah, me- mechanically, this game really works for me. Uh, historically, I think, you know, as I said, we we only have the one source, uh, Tacitus, I think, uh, who is the father-in-law of Agricola, who, who wrote basically everything we know about him. Um, so I think, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to play this game for a super deep simulation the way that you would... Um, you know, the Battle of Stalingrad or the Battle of the Bulge, where we know tons and tons of details about here's how many men were fighting, here's where they were fighting, here's how they were fighting. This game, you know, f- for obvious reasons, can't have that level of detail, but I think he does a really good job with the information that we have available to make a good, um, you know, historically themed game. Uh, that's as accurate as I think it can be, um, you know, and, and making a little more abstract uh, helps at that as well. Because if you were just to make a game based on that one named battle, what is it, Mon Gregor? I can't even remember. Grepius, yeah, something like that. We don't know anything about it. Like people, you know, archaeologists have never even found the location of where it was fought. We don't know how many men were there or anything. So, like, by abstracting that layer and making it a little more, you know, more detailed than states of siege, but far less detailed than you would see in like a battle of the bulge style game. Um, they've been able to, you know, make a game that still captures that flavor of history, but stays fun and, and very playable without getting mired in the details. Hmm. What, what I think this game simulates pretty interestingly is the, the, uh, the the way that it, as you fight different units and you, you take different actions, how how it affects how the different tribes react against you or towards you, right? So mm-hmm. so if you go into battle, you're likely to anger different units, different tribes around the area, and suddenly they're, they're starting to revolt and things like that. And I thought that was neat. 
Yeah, and one thing I did think about this game is the way you pacify tribes, essentially, is by building garrisons and settlements. And basically, you're giving them the Roman way of life. And that was an interesting question to me of, you know, I think the game takes the perspective and probably because Agricola took the perspective, you know, we, we don't have these British sources, but there's definitely this view that the Romans are coming in and giving civilization to the barbarians. And we don't know, you know, how, how would the Britons, these early tribes have responded to the Roman way of life. I mean, there's some question I think still of, you know, that's how you pacify people and move people from the hostile cup down to the friendly cup is by building settlements and, and doing these peacekeeping options that introduce that Roman way of life to people. And, you know, without getting too deep into that question, how how would Britons really have responded to that? I mean, it's something that we have no idea from their perspective how that how that worked. But, you know, it works excellently in the game. I mean, that's how you get auxiliary units and and get the tribes to work with you but uh i thought it was a very interesting question too that just building a city in britain um was better than what they had automatically or or originally and i in on on the design side of things i remember reading that this actually began as a two-player game and he learned very quickly that it wasn't going to actually work as a two-player game. And so I would love to hear um, from Tom Russell at some point, what was that shift and why did he decide to make it a, a solo game? I mean, he's written about it a little bit, but um, actually here, what what were the um, what were the original mechanisms for the two-player iteration of this game and which ones of those actually survived into the solo game or not? Yeah, I, do, I wasn't aware of that. That would be interesting yeah. to read. You guys seem to be a bunch of historians. I'm just a very simple guy. I don't have all these. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but I think this game can be enjoyed. Like I'm, I'm nerding out here about, you know, the the history of uh, first century Britain, but you do not need that level of, of information or interest to play this game. I mean, this game would work very well. um, Just, like okay you know this is when the game is set i don't care about the details like i think this would still be very fun just from the game mechanics and uh strategy that goes into playing the game without having you know worrying about uh, you know those kind of historical questions so um i think the three of us are are interested in it but i don't want to put people off who might not Mm be I, i agree well, Chris, I'm, I mean, I know what a historian like you thinks the game is missing, but for a simple person like me, <laughs> I really think the game is just missing something. No, I, I, actually, it's complete. Because <laughs> I didn't post questions for what's it missing last time, because I... I've been too busy listening to War Games to go to ever get to listen to our podcast. Well, here's a side secret. We're still recording episode 114. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're going to have a lot of time to fix that before we get to this one. <laughs> so I'll catch up this week for sure. This game is missing something, then. You're right. I hadn't seen it before, but oh my goodness. Little secret. In fact, with so many people, it could be missing four things. <laughs> well, I think we'll still try and limit to just two. That's probably a wise idea. And I think that being that Albert and I are the most common regulars here, why don't we have it be Travis and Chris who are going to be joining us in the debate this week? 
<laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> that works for me. All right. So, relying back on our usual words, what we're doing now is the What's It Missing game, where both of our guests are going to be arguing for a random word submission, as provided by some of our nice listeners. Um, they're going to be arguing which one of these more fits in the game. For today, Chris is going to be arguing that the game needs pocket watches, which is a submission from Lynn. And Travis is going to be arguing that the game needs bacon, which was a submission by Sean. Obviously. <laughs> and we'll let Travis go first. I think I think the debate is done. How do you argue against bacon? <laughs> You're, you're going to have a problem figuring that out in just a second. So we're going to let Travis go first since he got the bacon. Travis, you ready to start? Sure. I have, I have 30 seconds? Or you have 20 seconds. 20 seconds. All right. I'm ready. You have a five-second rebuttal at the end. Got it. Ready, set, go. So Agricola Master Britain needs bacon because every war game needs a little more chrome in it. And, I mean, it just makes sense that you have this entire unit of people, manly men, going around trying to destroy and subjugate these people, and they need the bacon to survive. Simple. Time's up. Apparently bacon is chrome. All righty. Chris, you ready? I'm ready. Go for it. As any good wargamer knows, in Rule 37CA-4, <laughs> you need to start the battle on time, and that's why pocket watches are important. Agricola would have used sundials, which is just not as accurate as a pocket watch. Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> if I have more time, I don't need it. <laughs> All right, well, Travis, your rebuttal. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we give you five seconds. Time travel? <laughs> that's all I got. That's all I got. Yeah, at least they had bacon in those days. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. Uh, all right, Albert, who won? Uh, we'll leave it up to the listeners. Ah, uh, Albert. Albert, you gotta get feet on the ground. Uh, my feet on the ground. Feet on the ground. Well, I, first man. Yeah. First man to vote. Um. If I'd vote, I, I'd, I'd vote for Rule 13.72. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure having both of you on the podcast with us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you all listeners for uh, what's become a slightly long episode. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening. Okay, and then we'll do the die roll. Acting. <laughs> Our strong suit, yeah. No, nobody really expects it of us. We're not Eric somewhere <laughs> over here, guys. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs>